Hi, this is Laurel. I'm the executive producer for the Forbes interview, and I wanted to tell you a little bit about TrueCar. It's an information and technology platform that lets you see what other people in your area paid for the car you are looking to buy. So it gives you context and helps you determine that you're getting a fair price. With knowledge can come empowerment. From there, you can connect with a local True Car certified dealer, feeling strong that you know what you're talking about and move forward in what otherwise can be an awkward car buying experience. With True Car, you can find the car you want at a fair price. Go to TrueCar.com to enjoy a confident car buying experience. Some features are not available in all states. This is the Forbes Interview Podcast, made in partnership with Podcast One. And I'm your host, Steve Bertoni. On this show, I'll do deep dive interviews with billionaires, entrepreneurs, and influencers. These are the faces you see on the cover of Forbes. And if they aren't on the cover, they easily could be. Please subscribe to the Forbes interview on iTunes. And while you're at it, leave a five-star rating and review. Your support will help keep the show going. Thanks so much. With us today is Adam Carolla. He's a comedian, actor, filmmaker, best-selling author, race car collector, and pioneer podcaster, featured in the Guinness Book of World Records for the most downloads. Adam, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. I'm flattered. Awesome, Adam. So, I mean, you've had a long career. How did you get this all started? Um... (laughs) Boy, how far back do we go here? Um, I was a carpenter. I, I just felt a certain sense of desperation. Like, is this all there is? It, there's got to be more than this. I mean, it, it was really an uncomfortable existence. It was kind of mm-hmm. nomadic. It was a lot of, like, traveling from this job site to that job site. And you always knew the job was going to end. And when it did, it was time to go find another job site. And a lot of the guys, including myself, lived like undocumented workers. Like, mm-hmm. we didn't have credit cards. We didn't have credit. We didn't have health insurance. We didn't have any union. It was just sort of living paycheck to paycheck. And then, you know, if it rained, you just didn't go into work that day, but you didn't get paid. I just sort of figured out when I was like 24, 23, 24, I just thought, what's the end game here? So I I, I was very pragmatic and I just said, um, what are you good at? And I said, I'm a good worker. I've got a strong back, a pretty good work mm-hmm. ethic, and I'm pretty good with my hands. So we, we know that part. What else do you think you could do? And I thought, well, you have a good sense of humor. And I had never been cultivated. I'd never been in a school play or, or wrote anything down, really, or done any stand-up or anything. I was sort of a jock in high school. I wasn't with the drama kids or anything like that. And uh, so I said, um, well, you really don't need to do anything until you're 30. I, I don't <laughs> know why, but I just sort of figured it, it for some reason when you're 21 or 22, you just think 30, now you're an adult. You know, you said you knew you had a good sense of humor. How did you know that? Were you the class clown? Did your friends think you were the kind of the, the, the funny guy in the group? I was the funny guy in the group, but my friends didn't put an emphasis on, on whatever brand of cerebral humor I was dishing out. It was a weird mixed message of you're the class clown and you are funny. Now shut up and sit down was kind of what I got out of high school. In the teacher's world, it went down as disruptive, and it was. It just, it would have been nice if they'd, eh, 
given me a little tip of the cap in the comedy world. And I came from a world where nothing really ever worked out and no one ever got to do what they want to do, not for a living. You know, you went to work, your job was miserable, you hated your boss, you got paid, and you were happy Friday afternoon when you went home, and then you're miserable Monday morning when you had to go back to that place and deal with your crappy boss and job and whatever it is you hated. And that's that's how it worked. And that's, that's a brutal, brutal cycle. It is. And it's also a, you know, whenever we talk about these, these cycles and the inner city and the impoverished people and all this, the biggest thing is it's not really the money or the school system. It's what you're passing down to your kids. You know, my parents passed down this God, work sucks. And it's just, you do just enough of it to get by, and then you go home and you relax. My dad worked sporadically, and he didn't seem to like his job. And uh, my mom just hammered welfare checks. So work was kind of like, first off, do as little as possible. And then, you know, secondly, you know, do, do the bare minimum required to exist. And if yeah, yeah, and if it has to be food stamps, then that's that's fine. So you were a carpenter building people's houses, but you couldn't afford a house of your own. And then what what was like the breaking point? What made you put down the shovel and say, "I'm going to give this comedy thing a chance"? Which, by the way, as you know, is like such a high risk, hard to get into business in the first place. But what was that breaking point where you said, "I'm going to give this a shot"? I, I wish I had a, a a good breaking point story. I, I don't. I, there was no breaking point, and I I couldn't afford a breaking point because I had to work for seven, eight, nine bucks an hour and pay my half of the rent of my one-bedroom apartment with the three dudes living in it and keep gas in my mini Datsun pickup truck. And I had a point, I had a realization in my early 20s that I don't think I could physically handle doing more than 10 years of this kind of work. It's so unrewarding. It's so miserable. It's dank. It's oftentimes dangerous. You'd crawl under there. There'd be dead cats and stuff. You'd be crawling around under the worst. Look, you wouldn't want to go in this building. Forget about going under this building. And that's (laughs) the kind of work we would do. I mean, and you'd go, well, there's not enough room to dig with a shovel and they'd go, oh, we got a coffee can. You can use that. It was like breaking out of prison. And not to mention you're in earthquake country, which probably adds a little (laughs) extra gamble to that. Well, the thing that was comical I used to think about when I was underneath these buildings, I used to always think it is ironic because we are earthquake proofing these buildings. That's what we were doing, but we've we've not earthquake proofed them yet. We're at the very beginning. I'm underneath the building at the start. And if there is an earthquake, I'll be underneath the building that needs to be earthquake-proofed, but wasn't. So you, obviously you didn't just say quit and do comedy. You were doing both, moonlighting, I guess. What was your first jump into that new world? I was realistic about it, which is, and, and I, I think more people should be a little more realistic, and, and not in a negative or humbling way, just in a sort of, um, you know, uh, look, let's, let's not get ahead of ourselves. You, you've got a good sense of humor. That's a great thing, but let's not put the cart before the horse. You need to get training. 
You need to get stage time. You need to go learn this craft and this skill and don't even bother going out and trying to make a penny for, for years. Just go get up on stage, do some open mics, you know, go take some groundling classes. Uh, don't ever turn down an opportunity to whether it's comedy traffic school, which I, I happily taught, or taking a groundlings class or breaking off later and starting with uh, Acme Theater uh, or standing in line to do an open mic at the Deli Smoker on Ventura Boulevard, which isn't even a comedy club. Go do it. Whatever it is, go do it and don't expect to get paid. In those early those early days, did you have kind of a routine or would you kind of improv? When I did stand up, I was doing my impersonation of what I thought a stand up would do. <laughs> so <laughs> I really my act wasn't even an act. It was like I wrote down jokes that I thought I could picture comedians doing if I turned on the Tonight Show or I, I wouldn't take anyone's material. I would simply do just bad jokes that I thought it had really no point of view at all. I, I flushed almost every single one of them from my from my from my consciousness. But I would say uh, <laughs> one I'll try to remember. Uh, I'd say like uh, you know they got AA for Alcoholics Anonymous and CA for Cocaine Anonymous, and now there's this uh, you know there's also sex you know sex addiction. So uh, what they got. For them, fucking a, and that was like a joke, and it's nothing I'm I'm interested in. I just thought it sounded like a joke to me, and so I would regurgitate it. I was reading a a, um, a recent Forbes article we did with you, and I guess you got a big break. You when you were doing some construction, you ran into was it Jay Leno? It was kind of a big uh, a chance encounter. Yeah, it was a big chance encounter for me, not for him. Um, it was a nuisance for him. Um, he was working, uh, sorry, he was renting a house up in the Hollywood Hills and, uh, I was working on the house uh, directly across the street from his house, but these were very narrow hill streets. I was trying to do stucco patch outside these people's house, like sort of up on their balcony. And, uh, I was looking off to my right and I would see Jay come out. It seemed like about noon and he'd come out and he'd get the newspaper and he'd go back in. And I thought, that's not a bad schedule this guy's keeping over here. And then at this other point, about one o'clock or what have you, he would come out now dressed head to toe in denim and open his garage and start fiddling with his motorcycles. And I, I think I knew it was Jay Leno and I knew he was a working comedian. He wasn't hosting the tonight show or anything after work one day. And I just sort of walked up to him and said, uh, hey, I'm Adam and I'm next door and I'm working on the house and um, I know who you are. And he was surprised. I, I, I don't think at that point many people recognized him. I see. And I told him, you know, I like wrenching on stuff, too. So, you know, if you need any help or whatever, if you don't mind me hanging out with you. And he was like amenable to it, you know. He was like, "All right." And then I started explaining that I'm interested in comedy, and and I'm curious how 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 you got started, or how what advice you would have for me. And he told me, "Go to the Deli Smoker." I don't know why it's a little crappy deli on Ventura Boulevard in Studio City. And he said, you, "They have open mics." 
go do something there. And uh, later on, I, I did a few sets there. I think I even made a recording of me doing doing some comedy there. And at some point, I think I dropped it off in his mailbox or something with with my phone <laughs> number on it. And I, uh, we finished a job. We moved on. And the next time I saw Jay Leno in person was when me and Jimmy were doing The Tonight Show. Hey, everybody. We're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, we'll hear what happened when Adam met Jay Leno on The Tonight Show after all those years. Stay with us. It's a great story. This is Steve, and you're listening to the Forbes interview on Podcast One. To know what other people paid for buying basics like paper towels or a can of beans might not seem important. But for a big purchase, like a car, that kind of information isn't just helpful. It's essential so you can determine a fair price. True Car can help you do that. TrueCar is an information and technology platform that lets you see what other people in your area paid for the car you're looking to buy. And the best part? You can work directly with a TrueCar certified dealer to establish a fair price before you even show up on the lot. TrueCar certified dealers have all the same information you do and are there to help you get the car you want while offering a faster, easier buying experience. Knowing what others paid has helped TrueCar users save on average over $3,000 off MRSP. So when you're ready to buy, visit TrueCar to enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features are not available in all states. And now back to Adam and Steve. That's amazing. Did he bring up the tape again? The thing that was funny about Jay and about Jay's wiring is when we showed up to The Tonight Show in 2000 or 2001 or something something like that, and Jay came into the dressing room to say hi. He always does that. Letterman wouldn't do that, but Jay would do that. Different guys mm-hmm. have, like, different approaches to it. But they'd I come see. by and go, hey, how you doing? Good. Thanks. See you out there. Have fun. You know, whatever. He came by, and I, I remember I had that story loaded. Like, I was I was really ready to my be like, my God, it's been 15 years. The last time I saw you, I was spreading stucco. Now you're hosting The Tonight Show, and I'm a guest on The Tonight Show. Can you <laughs> believe this? life we're living and he was like yeah well there you go and i was like crazy right jay and he's like yeah all right you guys have a good time out there <laughs> i was like okay yeah, good for you good for you and moving across kind of your, your this great timeline so your first was your first kind of get paid gig um, outside of of labor was it was it radio i always counted uh teaching comedy traffic school as sort of a paid show business gig <laughs> even though it was it was eight hours of stand-up for $80. I still sort of, in my mind, it's about all I had back then. But the first real gig was was radio. You have a, a huge following. You have a huge brand. How many how many downloads do you have now? How many followers do you have with the podcast? Uh, we have usually over a million per episode. Uh, and what kind of revenue does that bring in? Oh, millions. I have a deal with Podcast One, and so what I did is I essentially leased myself out to them. I I built the business up, and then I leased the business out to them. How is running this podcast different than running your, your radio shows? How's the, how are the two formats different? How, the, how is the two art forms different? The radio, uh, they're, they're not, not significantly um I can't exactly explain what my what my method is. The first thing I do is sort of put my head on a swivel, like 
try to notice everything. And when you do notice it, write it down, like make a note. Everything to me is potential material for comedy or rant or whatever it is. I just have to keep track of all of it or it'll just run it'll run all the way through me. It's a funny thing, uh, actually, speaking of Jay Leno, Jay Leno said to me once, like, I don't write anything down, he said. And I said, why not? And he said, if it's funny, you'll remember it. And if you forget it, it's not funny enough to use. And I was like, I didn't want to go. I disagree with that 1000 percent. But it's like <laughs> I forget everything I think of. And you, we were talking before about your your background. You grew up, you said, in a kind of a impoverished household. Now you, you know, you have a famous show. You have all amazing car collection, Paul Newman car collection. What is that like going from your your childhood when you said you were driving an old beat up pickup truck to now having um, a garage full of vintage race cars? What is that like? Just that lifestyle change. Well, I, you know, I think unfortunately. When somebody's working at the postal sorting factory in Gardena for 41 years and all of a sudden they get a lottery ticket and they win $17 million, they go from driving a diesel Chevette and living in a bad apartment to you know moving to Malibu and driving a Rolls Royce. That's a real change that that, that person can feel. Now, they're going from living in a snowbank to jumping into a hot tub. It, it took so long to get to that temperature that I kind of adjusted every step of the way. Uh, and yeah, you blink your eyes and, you, and you've written a bunch of books and made some documentaries and done a thousand podcasts and everything. But it's, it's, for me, it's just every day. It's just get up, sun shining, go to work, never really think about, you know, Oh, I'm, I, I'm, you know, I appreciate walking into my warehouse filled with Paul Newman race cars and I enjoy it and I try to expose my family to it and I, I try to get over there and appreciate it. But it, it happened over such a prolonged period of time and so slowly that it doesn't ever have that aha moment mm -hmm. when I walk through the door because I hung the door. You came up and kind of made a name for yourself in the 90s when traditional TV and traditional radio were king. And now we're in the world of social media and Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, you name it. How has social media changed the game for you? I don't know. It was something that I stayed away from intentionally for years. I, I, I didn't have an email account. People wouldn't email me or communicate with me via email because <laughs> I couldn't type. I couldn't read very well, but I certainly couldn't type. I've always had a little bit of a phobia of it and sort of like I've never played Scrabble in my life because I don't know how to spell. And if I showed up at your house and you said, we're having a dinner party and we're playing a game of Scrabble, I'd get really nervous really fast because <laughs> it's like, I'm not good at this. I, I, I'm, all of a sudden I'm back in junior high and everyone's making fun of me. I just sort of realized that I don't know anything about this stuff, so I should hire younger people who do know something about this stuff and then let them do it. It's actually bizarre that I inhabit this world, this podcasting world and this digital world and all this, and I, I have no real idea of how to use a computer. Despite that kind of technology fear, if you were that 24-year-old carpenter today, 
uh, trying to make a break in comedy, trying to make a break into showbiz, Adam, what would you do? What would be your first step today? Would, would you still go the old school route uh, at the deli or you think you'd you know, do something more, uh, more tech savvy or I guess more, more social these days? My feeling is have an idea that you want to pass along. First and foremost, what's your idea? Not where's the stage, where's the idea? Once mm-hmm. you f- have your idea and you have your ideas and thus you write things and you shape and you mold and you inform yourself and you shape an opinion, then you could be sharing it and we're talking about Twitter or YouTube or whatever whatever we're talking about now, but who the hell knows what's going to be around in four years or 12 years. For a young person that, that's listening that wants to have uh, some celebrity or build a following or an audience or whatever, I would say build a voice and an opinion first. And then if it resonates with the audience, then you'll get an audience. If it doesn't, it the technology or the modality or the microphone is kind of moot. Mm-hmm. So kind of create the content first and then let technology decide how it gets spread out there. Yeah, I mean, don't get so caught up in the the conveyance of your idea. Focus a little more on the idea and having a lot of ideas and a lot of ideas every day. And then I think magically things will work out. Yeah, speaking of it, you mentioned a couple of times on the show that you have trouble reading. You don't like spelling or writing. You can't use a computer. But how many books have you written? Five. How did that happen? The same way everything happened. Somebody came to me and went, uh, hey, you want to write a book? Uh, and I said, how much? And I, said, I think it was like $375,000 or something. I was like, all <laughs> right, I'll do it for that. And uh, I went home and um, I said to my wife, uh, you can type. You can type so well you don't have to look down. And she said, that's right. And I said, uh, you sit at the computer and then I'll talk and then uh, we'll write this book. And uh, she said, all right. Probably took about four and a half minutes before we were screaming at each other. That's a, that's a dangerous job for her. Yeah. And uh, I said, all right, uh, this is never going to work. And I then uh, called a guy named Michael Lynch. That's where that's how you write books. Now you're jumping into movies, I understand, correct? I've done a few movies. I've done a few documentaries. I'm making more documentaries. And if anyone wants to enjoy any of those, we started a, a website called chassis, C-H-A-S-S-Y.com, and you can get The 24-Hour War, which is the latest documentary we did. You can get uh, Winning the Racing Life of Paul Newman there, one that we acquired called uh, The Bug, which is uh, hosted by uh, starring Ewan McGregor about the VW mm-hmm. bug. What's kind of coming down the line? I'm getting ready to do a TV show on Spike, a uh, live home improvement um, in the documentary world, I'm doing Carol Shelby, Willie T. Ribs, first black racer to race at in the Indianapolis 500 and, hmm. and many other races as well. A very interesting character. And uh, K-Rock, the uh, radio station, K-Rock, um, a documentary about that station. What kind of draws you to documentaries? Is this a passion thing of you? Is it a business? Is it a mix of both? I started with the Newman doc because I just was like, I have these cars. I know that I know the story. I know no one else knows the story. 
people would show up and they'd see my Newman race car or I'd be racing my Newman race car and they'd say, uh, what, what's this? You know, and I'd say, that's Paul Newman's race car. Oh, what, was this some sort of celebrity circuit or something? And I'd, I'd go, no, he did. He was a full-time racer for a long time. So I set about to tell the story and, and the documentary just seemed to make the most sense. Once that came out good and, and it felt good and it was very well received, I thought, well, we should make another documentary. <laughs> and now we make documentaries. You know, I come from a, uh, a world where guys like me don't make documentaries. Documentaries are made by guys who went to NYU, who wear scarves and have funky frames on their glasses. And there's like a, a breed of guys in my mind, you know, sort of growing up kind of downtrodden, in North Hollywood, I just, if you would have told me about a guy who makes documentaries or a girl who makes documentaries, it always felt like college and the right people and New York City and stuff like that. And I was just a, you know, schlubby guy who walked around and drove a pickup truck and cleaned up garbage on a construction site. I wasn't, I, no one I knew or guys like me don't make documentaries. So, I just poisoned myself, basically, for really the first 50 years of my life. This is like nine lives in the entertainment world. It's, it's fascinating how it kind of all came together, Adam. I really appreciate uh, you coming on the show. Steve, thank you uh, so much for having me on the show. I appreciate it. Oh, yeah, my wife my wife would punch me in the groin if I didn't mention uh, Corolla Drinks, which she, which she is running. The Mangria and the Endless Rant IPA. Just go to CorollaDrinks.com and check that out. Thanks a lot. I might have a few mangrias tonight. Enjoy it. That's it for this episode of The Forbes Interview. I'm Steve Bertoni. Please subscribe to The Forbes Interview on iTunes. And while you're at it, leave a five-star rating and review. Your support will help keep the show going. Thanks for listening to The Forbes Interview, made in partnership with Podcast One.